listener. I'm Carl Anker and welcome to Talk with Devils, the Manchester United podcast from The Athletic. As usual, I'm joined by The Athletic's Manchester United writer, Laurie Whitwell. Hi Laurie, how you doing? I'm doing good, Carl. You're good? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Uh, and also joining us is United We Stand editor, contributing writer to The Athletic and the man with the best haircut in Barcelona. It's Mr Andy Mitten. Worst haircut. Nice one, <laughs> okay. It's been 15 years since the Glazer family took over control of Manchester United. And Laurie, I hear word you're working on a comprehensive piece on those 15 years, what they've brought to United and what they've possibly taken out. Before we get started, I want to talk a little bit about the third quarter results that just been released from Manchester United on Thursday. Manchester United, like many clubs in the Premier League and across Europe, have taken a bit of a hit due to COVID-19 suspension in football. Laurie, I'm not a numbers person, not really. My dad's an accountant, he's quite disappointed in that. <laughs> what are these numbers saying to you? Well, I think probably the biggest takeaway from United's um, quarterly financials was the fact that they had actually budgeted for a £20 million hit for the broadcast revenue f- for the whole season. So, um, And £15 million of that came out in this quarter. Um, so they, they that's the first time I think that a, a Premier League club has, has shown in black and white what they think um, the broadcast uh, rebate will be for the fact that they aren't playing games in front of crowds and the fact that they've had to delay these matches. So Sky and BT getting... Um, a chunk of money back and also Cliff Bates the chief financial officer said that he thought already that the um, COVID-19 crisis had cost Manchester United £23 million overall that includes that broadcast money um, but also stuff like the fact that um, the museums have been closed and the cafes have been closed various other revenue streams that United have so it was quite a startling um, you know announcement I think um, some people were perhaps expecting it more than than me but um, I still think it was certainly no- noteworthy um, and and, you know, if you drill down into it, clearly this effect, the effects of, of, of coronavirus crisis are, are going to be long lasting. And, and that was kind of the big takeaway. So, disappointed but not surprised. Is that a general consensus? Um, not necessarily disappointed. I think just you know the startling realities of it. Um, I suppose it was, it's a bigger number than you perhaps would have thought um, for the for the broadcast rebate. Um, I think people perhaps were expecting it to be a, a little bit more um, you know negotiations to take place with, with Sky and BT. But but they, United said basically that their indications are that that's what the the money back to the broadcasters will be um, after all the talk. So it, it's it's a pretty accurate reflection. Are United in a better state to to weather this sort of? financial storm compared to other clubs in the Premier League? I would say so, definitely. I mean, you look at the commercial revenue streams and that's the biggest um, revenue stream that United have. It's even, you know, supersedes the broadcasting revenue, which for a lot of clubs is their massive earner. Um, you look at a club like Bournemouth and that's basically their entire revenue, really. Um, whereas for United, it's it's the second, uh, you know, biggest stream compared to commercial. And the commercial was, was pretty good. You know, they, they've added a couple of sponsors, so that they seem, you know, okay in that front. And, you know, speaking to people at the club more more recently, they're they're pretty positive on the whole um, new shirt sponsor as well. Obviously, uh, Chevrolet will come to an end um, 2021, so they're in the in process of appointing a new sponsor. And they their their word is that they're, you know, they've still got companies coming to them wanting to be associated with them because of the the fact that they've got so many eyeballs on them. You know, on social media, let alone you know TV and, and wherever wherever else. So, um, yeah, so certainly United are better incubated, in my opinion, to, to weather this kind of storm. And they also revealed that they had, um, you know, they've got 90 million in cash and they've also got 150 million pound credit card, basically a new credit facility that they've been able to get uh, hold of. So I certainly think they'll, they've got some flexibility with, with their spending at least. 
you said 90 million in cash and the only thing I could think of there was Harry Maguire. <laughs> That's why it's 80 million down from, so, the, so the, the growth, so that the net debt is actually 120 million down from this time last year. And that's mainly because they paid the Harry Maguire fee all up front. So yeah, you're not, you're not far off there. Listen, I've just finished reading the piece. It's now live on the Athletic website. I highly recommend it to you, if not for the fantastic anecdote right at the beginning. It's been 15 years now since the Glazer family have taken control of Manchester United. Um, is it fair to say they'll be here for a bit longer, Laurie? Yeah, I think that was probably one of the main takeaways, actually. Um, obviously, there's been lots of different speculation over the years since they took control of the club. Different bids have you know, uh, potentially gone in. Um, talks, consortiums have been gathering. You know, Obviously, we had the Red Knights. Um, we've had the talks with Saudi Arabia this year. Um, United insists that it never got beyond the um, opportunity to have sponsorship with Saudi Arabia. We have been told by sources that um, United were only looking to uh, give up 20%, the Glazers were only looking to give up 20% of the club. So clearly they are, you know, you speak to other people around, committed, they're looking at the long haul. Joel Glazer is is the big boss, so to speak, and he, you know, works eight hours a day on, on United. So he's, he's definitely involved in the club on a very close basis. So I, I, personally, I, I can't see anything happening in, in the near future you know, not only because of the Glazers' intentions, but also because of the fact that who can actually afford United now? I mean, you look at the share price and and that alone puts United at around $2.7 billion, I think. Um, and then you just have to think, what would the Glazers actually want for the club? So the, the, the pool of people or, or even, you know, nation states companies that could actually afford the club is is getting smaller, you'd think, as, as the price is going up. So it's a question, yeah, really big question. I mean, I sort of enjoyed, as you say, a month probably. Um, I haven't grown a beard because my facial hair uh, abilities are appalling, but um, I've certainly been working a long time on it and trying to get to the nub of what the Glazers intended when they took over and what it's been like at United since that point. Um, I mean, Andy, obviously you were around there at the time, weren't you? Right at the heart of this. Um, I mean, I... Me and my dad actually had shares in United um, when the the Glazers, you know, began their takeover, and ultimately they so they bought our shares off us. You know, it was a you know a compulsory purchase, um, and then we gave the money to United um, supporters groups to to use um, in their own way. So I don't know, but you you were right at the heart of it, weren't you, Andy? What what are your sort of recollections? Yeah, I'd, I'd followed it right the way through. I can remember the initial shareholding and share issue in two, in 1991, which was undersubscribed and had to be underwritten. And a lot of United fans couldn't afford to buy shares at that time. Rotterdam had just happened. People's finances were stretched. And it's staggering when you look how cheaply Manchester United could have been bought back in 1991. But go to 2005. Well, we had, we had a black cover on the, the front um of, of, of United We Stand to indicate that it was a dark period in Manchester United's history because on the football field, things were not going as well. United had finished third at a time when United finished first and second all the time. They'd lost the, the FA Cup final despite outplaying Arsenal. But the, 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 the big, big elephant in the room was, was the takeover. The fans had objected to it, they'd protested against it. I'd interviewed David Gill the previous summer in Chicago and, and he'd actually spoken up about the Glazers, saying that, that they had a very good understanding of the sports industry. But the fans were furious, absolutely furious, especially when it became clear that it would be a highly leveraged takeover where most of the money would be borrowed 
there was a lot of instability about. It, it was like a civil war, even among the fans, and there are still repercussions to this day. Um, it, 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 it just absolutely shattered Manchester United's fan base. And even from doing United We Stand, we probably lost 30% of our writers and people who just chose to go with, with FC United, which was a start-up club formed after the, the takeover had gone through in, in May 2005. My brother was one of the first two or three players to join FC United. He dropped down four or five divisions to to play up front for FC. Some of my best mates went to FC. There's some people I've not spoken to since that day, even though I, I probably went to five or six, seven FC games to watch my brother. But it, it was so, so divisive. It was so controversial. Um, and, and it cut really, really deep. And, and, it, and it still does. People may have read headlines in newspapers and thought, okay, that takeover's been done and dusted. It was a little bit bumpy along the way. No, it, it, it really was divisive. And, and, and it still is to this day, and it still evokes very strong, passionate and entrenched uh, feelings. And I'm sure you found that when you were researching the article, speaking to all the different people, Laurie. Yeah, well, you've um, you obviously know a few of the people that we've spoken to. Andy Walsh being one of them, who um, was involved with um, Independent Manchester United Supporters Association at the time. He was talking about how he um, was sat outside Old Trafford in his car um, when he was. He actually had to. He'd already had the renewal for his season ticket for two thousand five, two thousand six um, accepted. So he had to actually go in and withdraw that season ticket um, renewal. And he was sat in his car before he did it, and, and he said he cried um, because he, you know, he'd been supporting the club since he was five, um, and and then to sort of walk away from it was a, a huge emotional wrench. So, and clearly, if, if you're talking about people that you haven't spoken to since that period, that's that's incredible, isn't it? That it would create such uh, strength of feeling, but you can understand it when you know people view clubs as community assets as places where you go to enjoy and share emotions and share experiences and memories and the the glazers came in with a, an approach that was football is a business and, and, and football obviously is a business now you know clubs have followed their path in the commercial direction the way they've taken that um, and we've spoken to quite a few people that were involved in the club at the time and, and talk about how much of a different strategy the glazers came in with rather than it be a case of three or four or five sponsors with a real strong relationship with United and, and that would therefore make the, the, the sponsorship more valuable. They came in with an approach that they wanted lots and lots of sponsors, um, you know, cutting it quite thinly, I suppose, is one way of putting it. And and that has then obviously raised the revenue and other clubs have followed their path. So that's the, when I was speaking to Andy, that was one of the things he mentioned that he, he felt it had strangled the soul of United, this association with lots of different um, you know, Mr. Potato or, or the Japanese noodle partners or the various other things that obviously has been brought up before. Um, so, but then, you know, other people will say, well, that's why, as we spoke about the, at the start, Carl, that's why United have been able to incubate themselves from the difficulties of coronavirus crisis because they have all these commercial uh, relationships. So it's it's such a, a, a difficult thing to, to pin your, your flag down in. But I think the, the ultimate thing is when, when the club were taken over in, in a leverage, in such a leverage fashion, you know, I think it's something like 66% of the club was was leveraged. Uh, you know, to, uh, we, we make it 270 million of the Glazers' own money in a 790 million pound takeover, which seems, a, a, you know, a small you know fraction to me um, at least. And, and one of the points was that in, a, in the NFL, you can't actually um, leverage that much. It's at the moment it's a 350 million dollar 
uh, flat rate for what you can um, borrow against a, a purchase of an NFL club, so which equates to about twelve percent of the of the average NFL club value at the moment. So clearly, that was a lot of money, and that's what the fans, I think, I'm right in saying, were, were most scared and and angry about that the club would be plunged into such a, a potential risk financially. Yeah, they were. They were, and and you can look at it in so many different ways. I don't think the takeover should ever have been allowed to happen. I think weak legislation allowed that. And British government, I went to see the British government and they said, well, we'll we'll write a stern letter saying we're we're concerned, which amounted to to nothing. I don't blame the Glazers. I think they've been very smart in some ways. And you mentioned these Japanese noodle partners. I've got no problem with this. This actually helps Manchester United much rather United build up their roster of sponsors and the commercial activity than increase ticket prices, for example. They were the, con- they were the concerns in 2005 of our readers. And United, commercially, have been, have been world leaders, even if they've not been off the pitch. And I, I've spoken to people at Barcelona and Real Madrid at director level where they said, Man United are number one. They are that smart. And it's all right saying it's, it's simple what they've done in terms of Dividing the world up geographically and saying we want a wine sponsor from South America or we want a noodle partner in in Japan. Nobody had done it before. For years, United struggled to monetize their support. And I knew people like Edward Friedman, who's quoted in your piece, they, they had a nightmare trying to stop, for example counterfeit copies of the official United magazine in, in, in Thailand. They couldn't monetize the support. The Glazers, they monetized the support. And there was a real sort of eureka moment for me when I was in India of all places, 2009, United were the world champions, English champions, European champions. And I saw a big advert on a roadside and it was an Indian vodka company with pictures of Manchester United players. And I just thought that is so simple and yet so smart. They're aligning their company with this really successful football team and United were getting millions for it. But in 2005, what were the worries? Ticket prices, because we had heard the ticket prices were going to shoot up and they did do. For the first five years, they shot up. I know people who had to stop going to games because they couldn't afford the tickets. And I don't care whatever business model you want to apply by saying people in London pay this and that. I know people who stopped going to games because they couldn't afford tickets. But to be fair, in the last decade, ticket prices have not gone up. And I think they're aware of, of what the issues are now. Uh, there was obviously a worry that the debt couldn't be paid back. And there were times, I think, during the, the financial crisis of, of 08, 09, where there were some pretty hairy moments but then you kept seeing these sponsorship deals coming through. I, I remember seeing that Chevrolet deal thinking, wow, how on earth has somebody pulled that off? And it, it basically enabled United to be to go for some of the best players in the world and go for your Di Marias. You, know, you can argue separately to that that they've squandered the load uh, of the money. And now you can also say, what is the alternative? I don't think... Um, it's the perfect ownership model by any stretch. And I used to look at Barcelona and think that is the perfect model. But it's not because it is fan-owned and I'm a, I'm a fan of fan-owned sports and institutions, but I see the politics driving Barcelona apart. They can't plan for the long term because each president comes in for four years and all these priorities to deliver is a, a winning football team because if he doesn't, he's going to be pushed out. So 
it puts on the back burner things like ground and stadium redevelopments because that's that means the team investment's going to take a huge hit. I'm not sure there is a perfect model for football club ownership. I spoke to a director of Schalke for the biggest fan-owned club in Germany 10 days ago, and his prime concern was we're running out of money compared to other clubs. We cannot compete with the commercial strength and benefactors of, of other clubs. So, you know, Liverpool, they welcomed their first American owners in Hicks and Gillette, and that was far, far worse than, than the Glazers. Glazer's been there for 15 years now. It's a pretty stable model. But don't ever expect it to be popular because owners are never popular. Martin Edwards was never popular. The people at the top were never popular. David Gill, Peter Kenyon. Football fans don't like the people who owns their club. I think it's like an inherent suspicion of them. They call them the suits. These are the people who've got to make the, the unpopular decisions as well. Unless... You get a benefactor coming in, which is pretty sad as well in another way. You know, I see Newcastle fans now. You you sense you sense that they'd give up everything just for one League Cup. And that's pretty sad. They they'd they they compromise all, all all the things that they believe in just to have an outsider putting money in. So it's a very complex issue, but ticket prices and on the street, outside the ground, it's all right, people saying this executive said that, that executive. I was stood outside the ground where I try to be fair with people. We gave FC United space in United We Stand. I wanted to be fair with FC United. And on one hand, I had extremists on both sides saying, you're a disgrace giving them space because they're nothing to do with Manchester United. They're Judas. And on the other, you had people from FC saying, why have you not come with us? You're a disgrace for still going to Old Trafford because they're now part of the Glazers. This is how entrenched opinions were. And this was playing out every single week in real life outside Old Trafford. And there were fistfights. There was a lot of anger there. And people were completely entrenched. Um, the Glazers caused a civil war among Manchester United fans. I don't think they intended to. I can see why they did it. But that was the reality of it. And, and FC uh, uh, is still going now. And I think they've done brilliantly. I think they're a... They are a community club. You see it when you go to, to the stadium. And yet there's still a lot of Man United fans who will just never have them. You support your team through thick and thin. And I get all sides of the argument, but it's a big argument. It certainly was a civil war. And central to that was the figure of Sir Alex Ferguson, who, depending on who you ask, was uh, compromised one way or the other. Laurie, how did Alex Ferguson play into this takeover? And was his reputation damaged by it but in any shape or form? It's a good question, Carl. I mean, I think going back to, as Andy says, when the when the club became a PLC, that obviously opened up anybody being able to buy shares in the club. And a lot of the time, Sir Alex Ferguson would have difficulties, you know, in contract negotiations with the club. So I think a part of that was, could he strengthen his own position at the club? And, you know, some people that would buy shares in it would be the Coolmore uh, individuals, the Irish owners of, of racehorses who Ferguson had struck up a relationship with through his love of horses. They bought shares, then they fell out over the stud rights to the Rock of Gibraltar, um, which became a legal battle, came very public, um, very acrimonious. And that then became a very pressured situation where the the Coolmore um, gang would still buy shares in uh, United and were looking to 
pressure Ferguson in, in his position at the club. Um, it was quite an incredible situation, really. And then from that, United, I think, realised that to alleviate that, they probably needed somebody else to have shares. The Glazers were already looking at the club. They were, you know, not not discouraged from, from buying more shares in it. Um, and then it flipped again and the Glazers obviously wanted to take over the club. They, they saw it as, a, as an opportunity, as a business proposition. And um, at that point, Sir Alex Ferguson actually um, resisted, said, we don't want the club in anybody else's hands. Um, but as it progressed, it became clear that the Glazers did have the, the financial clout, did have the uh, loans in place to, to have this leverage takeover. And I think Sir Alex Ferguson realised that the, the best thing for the club would be to get on board with them as owners and that's what happened. Um, we have a, a tale from, from Andy Walsh again where he actually had a, a good relationship with Ferguson over a number of months where they would have talks and, and Ferguson would want to know what the fans were thinking and I think that should be applauded really that a manager of a football club at that point was having a direct conversation with fan representation and was wanting to know what they were thinking. Now, obviously, that had a benefit to him because it made it gave him more knowledge of the situation, but also it gave the fans a voice. And, and Andy Walsh was actually able to, on the final day of the 2005 season, when Southampton uh, United beat Southampton 2-1, um, send them down, actually um, was able to say to Ferguson, would you consider resigning? Because they thought that if Ferguson resigned, that would um, make the banks that were lending the Glazers the money have doubts, become nervous and would, would pull the plug on it. And, and if they thought that would make the deal collapse, the fans had a different um you know, potential takeover with uh, the Japanese investment bank Nomura. Um, that wasn't without its own difficulties, its own borrowings. Um, I'm sure Andy knows knows more than me on, on this one as well. But it felt that that would potentially happen if, if Ferguson resigned and then they could bring him back in as manager and, and they would, you know, have fan ownership. So Ferguson's role in it was a really interesting one. And, and, and Andy, again, you, you probably know more than me what it was like at that exact time. There's a lot of what ifs, Laurie, as you, as you say, in this, this in what was a pretty sorry uh, year. Um, Sir Alex Ferguson's probably the greatest ever British football manager, but he left himself open to questions, pertinent questions for for his role in the takeover. And when push came to shove, he his phrase was, "My loyalty is to my staff here." Uh, when when one Manchester United fan challenged him and basically accused him of being a sellout, he said, well, why don't you go and support Chelsea? And he got the tone totally wrong there because football fans do not change um, their teams. And Sir Alex Ferguson wasn't an expert in fan culture. He's an expert in football management. So he couldn't vouch for how all the fans were feeling beyond the sort of the plaudits of we've got great fans, they're great getting behind us. You can't vouch for the feelings of someone who's watched Manchester United a lot longer than he, as an employee of the club, um, had done. You, you'll find uh, fans now remember Ferguson incredibly well. You'll find others who just think he sold out completely. And this was an example of of the of, of the civil war which, which was going on. You had a hundred different strands of opinion, and every single person thought that their view was the right one. And getting coherent views out of this was very difficult. So on one side, you had FC United going away and being formed. And then you had, I would say, a majority of Manchester United fans who actually do not care who owns the club. As long as the team is successful, they don't care. They've got, they go to football as a release. They go to football to be entertained. Football is an escape. 
from the the mundane mundanity of, of life and they're not that bothered. It's only when results start dropping that fans become bothered at a mass at a mass level. So you had all these, and I, I was stood outside the ground. You know, I'm thinking, is United we stand finished now? And people were coming up to us that first game after the takeover when the new season started, and eighty percent of the conversation was about the game that day. It wasn't about the takeover. You had people who stopped going, and it was just it was just a really difficult time for Manchester United fans and it was com- it was compounded by the fact that the team wasn't actually very good at the time Fergie was about to build another great team and when the, when the ticket prices were going up that that really didn't endear the, the United fans um, to, to the owners and it, it's still going on now I've got to say though in, in other areas they they have they have performed well I, I sense that even now during the lockdown, Manchester United of a club have performed better than any other club. They're, they're engaging with the community. They're realising that real people, um, the, the football club is central uh, to their lives. United have done a lot of good things, uh, as they have done with, um, with with stuff like admission prices. If you would have said to me a decade ago, ticket prices will not go up at Old Trafford in a decade, I would have said no chance of that because the owners want to squeeze out every penny they can. But you can watch United. You can sit behind the goal and watch United now for £25. That's very, very good value. I don't care which... which. I hear people saying the ticket prices are too expensive these days. I'm sorry, I don't buy it. If you would have put that to me in '96 or put that to me in 2006, I would have brought that. But they're not. It's good value to go and watch that team now. It's, well, it's actually interesting as well that the match day rev- revenue... Um... It hasn't really changed in 10 years for United. It's, it's sort of 110, yeah. 115 million pounds, whereas obviously commercial and broadcast has, has exponentially gone up. So that is a very valid point. And the growth has come from these commercial areas. And what 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 compromises must the club make there? They're letting people use their name. I don't have a, a big problem with that. The players, okay, there's a lot of commercial demands on the players. But then if they sign for a club who are going to pay him better than anyone else. They have to accept part of that. There was all, there would always be pushbacks between the playing side and the commercial side. And what Mike Phelan used to do is he'd get the itinerary for a pre-season tour. And before he showed it to Sir Alex Ferguson, he'd say, not a chance of that, because the commercial team wanted as much time from the players as possible. So I think there'll always be these conflicts. And, and I've been on pre-season tours where I've been interviewing players in Miami two years ago. And I'm just seeing United have spliced the whole squad up into four groups. And it's like, okay, you six, you go and speak to them because they're a really important sponsor. And you've got nine minutes with them. And then you're going to go and speak to them. And then you're going to have a cup of tea with him. And you're thinking on one level, they are so smart here. Because in the 1980s, them players would just be drinking alcohol all day. And the club have really, this is the worst phrase ever, sweating their asset. But they are doing. (laughs) They're bringing the money in. Well, I think I think the one big criticism that you can still, or at least the one, the reason why a lot of people would never get on board with the Glazers is because of the money that has gone out because of their 
leverage buyout. So obviously you've got five hundred million pounds of debt on the club right now. Obviously that hasn't changed as a gross, you know, principle in US terms um, for the last sort of four or five years. Um, but then also there's been the interest rate on the, on those debts over the fifteen years, the the consultancy fees, the advisory fees, and and the dividends. So I mean we put the figure at about one point five billion, um, which is money that would have been in the you know, in the club without their buyout, I, w- I would say. Um, okay, would would the commercial growth have gone as, as as big as it has? I don't know. Nobody can say. You know, there's people at the time that would say their model might have still grown the club in that way. Um, you know, United would, 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 on the flip side, say, well, you know, they've added three billion um, pounds of value to the club. But if they ever sold the club, that money isn't going to United. That, that money's going to the Glazers. So I'm not sure I totally got on board with that. I mean, and, and the other thing with, with with the dividends, and this is something that came out in the uh, latest quarterlies. So they've they paid you know eleven million pounds of dividends uh, this this uh, in January. They've got another what will probably be eleven million pounds of, of dividends in June. They did it twice a year, and that's going to go through despite the, the current crisis, which is which is fine. You know, if the company's performing well, the dividends which are you know decided by a remuneration committee, they, they are paid. Um, but at the same time, they have also deferred the VAT tax for a year, which is about £10 million, which is a specific rule that's been brought in by the government. It's, it's supposed to alleviate you know businesses that aren't able to to, to, um, to pay their VAT this, this year, given the, the crisis. So that, that kind of, I, I do think that kind of balance does need to be looked at. Clearly, they've done really good work with not furloughing staff, with, with pointing staff towards voluntary um, work and I've been speaking to some people that have been doing that and, and some of the stories are absolutely fantastic in terms of how they've been able to link with the community so I, th- I think that should absolutely be applauded but I also think when when you're deferring tax for a year of, of 10 million okay the UK government will get that eventually but if they're, if they're able to pay dividends then surely you think they'd be able to pay tax as well that's my only point but anyway <laughs> yeah it's a cash cow it's it's a cash it is it is a cash cow which is why the why the Glazers bought the club. They didn't buy the Rochester Rockets or whatever they're called from from where they're from in the US. They bought Manchester United because they saw they saw they saw potential in it, and they were quite right and they were quite smart to to do that. And your point about now with with the, with the staff, I know loads of people who work at the club. I'm from a part of Manchester which is full of Manchester United employees and has been for years. I've not heard one of them say anything negative about the club during this lockdown. They say they are proud to work for that club. They've been absolutely fantastic. And I'm a bit surprised, you know, because I've known a lot of these people for a long time. And I used to, I didn't used to like it when people would say, love the team, hate the club. I'm thinking, well, I know loads of good people who work at that club. And they're Manchester United fans. And they're proud to work for for, for Manchester United. But the, 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 the interest payments that have gone out of the club and the dividends, don't ever expect fans to be on side with that and think it's a good thing because they, they just won't do. And, but, but that's what attracted them to the club in the first place. That Manchester United are one of the three biggest clubs in the world and the Glazers have successfully monetized that global uh, appeal. I'd be more interested now, if they're going to show that they're serious about being here in the long term, which they say they are, and to be fair, they've been there 15 years now, get Old Trafford sorted out because Old Trafford should be bigger. Uh, the stadium is full every week. The capacity has come down 2,000 in the last couple of years. It's been overtaken in some ways by the best stadiums in Europe. Tottenham have built a fantastic stadium. Real Madrid are spending money on their ground. Barcelona are too. Get Old Trafford up to 90,000. The demand is there. And I know it's not just as easy as adding another tier. I know it's complicated, but I also know there have been plans there in the past. 
and invest the hundreds of millions, maybe not right now because of the situation and the money the club are having to burn during during the lockdown. But expand it. Do 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 two with the quadrants which haven't been done. There was a time two or three years ago when I started writing about this extensively that I was seeing peeling paint on the girders at Old Trafford. This wasn't wasn't good enough. Now it's been smartened up a bit, I've got to say, and there has been some um, money invested into it. But put money into building the ground. That would show that you are really serious about the long-term future of this club. It's not going to be as easy as doing a 10 million deal to attract another sponsor, but do it. I don't know a fan who wouldn't object to that stadium being expanded and improved. And that's what United have done throughout their history. They've got a consistent record, and that's why Old Trafford was so good in the first place. And other clubs like City, their ground was a mishmash of different architectural styles, which showed that they changed the change club chairman every five or six years or whatever old trafford wasn't like that so continue it do it and and then i wouldn't say that fans are going to start ever warming pretty much to anyone who owns a club because football fans don't really do that unless it's a benefactor pouring money in but they definitely see more sense in what you do next week we want to hear your travel memories so in celebration of the time when Manchester United confirmed themselves as the best team on god's green and won the Premier League, the FA Cup and the Champions League. Oh, what a night in Barcelona. Uh, we want to hear all of your stories. Um, Andy, I hear you have a fantastic interview with one member of the team who was there. I spoke to Jesper Blomqvist, who's maybe not the most high-profile member of the treble winning team, but he's got an incredible story uh, about about his life, about his career. So that will be on The Athletic. I'm not sure when it's going to go up. I'd imagine in the next couple of days. So... Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to talking next week because that trip to Barcelona in '99 that will be one that Manchester United fans never forget. And I'm sure even the fans who, who weren't there, because probably 50,000 United fans, 60,000 United fans in Barcelona, or if you applied a Celtic and Seville calculator, 500,000 United fans <laughs> in Barcelona. But, but, but you know, United fans were around the world. People have come up to me over the years and said they got up at four o'clock in the morning in wherever and it's just just a time where everyone who supports United came together to see the most dramatic end to a football game ever. Yeah, let, let's get some great stories for that next week. Absolutely. Listeners, please contact us on social media. Share your stories, your photographs, your tales of where you were during those two finals. Other than that, let's have a little bit of a mailbag. We've got some uh, transfer-related questions and some score-related questions to start off this mailbag. Uh, Lucas underscore MUTD wants to know, what plan does Oli have for some of the very talented youngsters in United's reserves and academy teams? How does this affect Manchester United's transfer strategy? Laurie, I'm going to throw this one to you first. Yeah, it's a good question. I think um, clearly... You know, we've seen with Solskjaer that he wants to give youth team players a chance. Brandon Williams has come out of nowhere and done really well, um, solidified himself as a first team player. Mason Greenwood is another one, obviously, that's you know clearly a generational talent, and and I think big things are, are hoped of him for next season, which is sort of influencing their 
their sort of approach to the striker search. Um, so we'll we'll see how that develops. But I think there are other players, you know, in the just below that surface that, that Solskjaer would like to have a look at. You know, obviously he would have done so in a pre-season, but you know, you might actually see in the games that we've got coming up, you know, behind closed doors, where you've got more substitutes allowed and and, and, and sort of bigger squads, where you know youth team players might be getting a, a little bit of a chance. Um, I really like the look of Dylan Levitt. Um, I was over in Astana when he um, started and played over. 100 passes in that game he really dictated things um, I spoke to Ryan Giggs about him and, and he loves the the kind of he's got a bit of an edge to him as well you know, he's quite a quiet lad uh, I spoke to him ahead of uh, them going out to Partizan Belgrade early this season and he was you know, one word monosyllabic answers um, which I don't know Andy you might know better than me the, the sort of similarities to Paul Scholes in that regard um, but he uh, he certainly got a lovely sort of passing range and, and a good engine to him um, and James Garner's probably another one as well that's sort of knocking on the door a little bit um but yeah i mean they're, they're sort of two guys that i think i could see i would love to, i would love to see this the, the, this series of matches behind closed doors another f- you know few youth team players getting a little bit of a chance if if the situation depended obviously the the key thing is is united trying to finish you know in fourth if possible and and, and certainly in, in that fifth position um if manchester city don't make the uh, champions league but yeah that's how i see things anyway yeah, I'd go along with most of that, Laurie. I asked Ollie Gunner two weeks ago but pretty much the same question and he said there are two or three players, uh, probably the ones you mentioned, who it, it, who would have been given a chance at pre-season. And it's really important to him that young players get promoted and, and see a direct pathway into the first team. And I think there's you know Hannibal is only young, but I think you're going to start seeing players uh, like him featuring more. And, and Levitt, yeah, I thought he started the game really well in a star and I like the team did but then their experience inexperience kicked him and that led to them uh, in the ma- losing the match so it's got to be done it's got to be done gently I don't buy this line where people sometimes say throw the kids in because if you throw the kids in you're going to lose matches <laughs> which is what happened in Astana against a Kazakh team uh, so it's got to be done carefully uh, and I think Ole Gunnar will, will do it carefully as Jose did as well I think you've got to credit Mourinho the way he brought some of the other players through, but Oli Gunnar is a firm believer. And not only that, he watches these players a lot. He's spending hours communicating with the youth team coaches. He'll tell you who the best 15-year-old is. He'll tell you who his concerns are in the 16s. Well, there isn't the 16s because most of them were let go at the start of last season. And he's on it. And and that fills me with, with a confidence. And I wrote a piece for The Athletic about it. Uh, a month or two back, just saying that United Youth System is not all there yet, but it's far better than it was five years ago. Absolutely. Um, another question from Sid here. Oh, simply, does Manchester United need a new defensive midfielder or are they going to rely on Emmanuel Matic until Garner and Lever are ready? What do you think, Laurie? They're certainly in the market for one and I think that's where the Jude Bellingham interest you know, uh, is, is coming from. Although, Having said that, Bellingham is probably more of an attacking midfielder, or certainly a utility midfielder. So, but but whether or not United look at him and think actually he could really do a, a job, sort of holding, um, you know, he's sixteen, turning seventeen this um, in June, and um, he's already got a stature um, for for a midfielder of that ilk. So that, that's where they're they're coming from with that. They they see him as a potential first teamer pretty pretty quickly. So I wonder if if they get him over the line, that will be that that kind of holding you know midfielder or at least a midfielder of that kind of stature. Um, Matic is, is there for another year and I think he's obviously done really well since he came back into the team um, I, I think you can't underestimate the, the link that he provides to, and, and the calmness the experience that he provides to United albeit you know 
he did have a, a, a tough start to the season and did need to to, to pick it up, but, but he has done so. Um, so yeah, that's how I see that situation. I, again, I don't know if you think any differently, Andy. Matic has improved massively, like you say. I think him and Fred have stopped giving the ball away. That was the problem. The, Fred especially was training well, but then he'd go into matches, lose the ball early on and his confidence had dropped. Matic is such a calm player. And he's been one of Manchester United's best players in, in the good run of form. And he wants to stay at the club. He's signed his new contract. Bellingham, 16. If he did sign, he'd be 17. Imagine a 17-year-old in central midfield for United. That, that excites me and worries me at the same time. But that's what football should do. And if the manager thinks that he's, he's ready and he's certainly being talked up as being one of the great next British footballers, then great. Give him a chance. Give players a chance. And... Some take it and some wobble a little bit and some can look world beaters in the reserves and some can be like James Wilson and be scoring and you think this guy's going to be centre forward for Manchester United and when they come into the first team it doesn't quite happen for them and timing's really important as well and luck as well. I can remember Fraser Campbell playing a game and if he would have scored, he had a really good chance, I think it was against Birmingham City, I'm sure things would have worked out different. But then again, Federico Macheda did score and things still didn't work out great for him. And he will admit now, looking back, actually, I was a bit of a dick. <laughs> and it was my <laughs> fault. And you, <laughs> you know, and you get quite a few players doing that. You know, they, they just think that they know absolutely everything at 17, 18. And 10 years later, they look back and go, I absolutely didn't. So I think Ollie's worked a lot with young players. He's a good man to have there. That's, that's, I was going to just pick up on that actually, Andy, because I think that is something that Solskjaer has definitely brought into the club. That that kind of mentality where young players deserve, you know, chances deserve um, credit where it's due, but equally need to be given the carrot. Need to be continually pressed and, and, and not given anything too easily. So, so I think it's, it's a good balance that he's got at the moment. Yeah, he'd rather have a hole in his team than an arsehole. He said it last week. Great he, quote. He wants the right type, right type of people. What's interesting, what's interesting about that quote is I've seen it reported as asshole and a okay. asterisk, asterisk, <laughs> asterisk hole. Let me let me tell you, he said arsehole. <laughs> I've got it. I've I've got it on tape here. And if he doesn't want arseholes in his team, then I think that's a, a a good thing thing to have. You know, I think the gist of of what he's saying there is, you know. He wants he wants good eggs. He wants people who want to be at Manchester United, who will willing to give everything for the team. And which fan doesn't want that? I once played against James Wilson in Carrington. He absolutely skinned me. Um, <laughs> on a different note, uh, Laurie, Baffle, Gemars, what's the latest on Gomez and Nagalo? Contract situation there for both players is hmm, interesting. It's looming, isn't it? Um, I, I spoke to somebody last week about Angel Gomez, and the the kind of inference that I got was that you know the the money that is is being asked for, and I think also that the the chances that um, is being asked for it just aren't quite there yet with, with with where United see things. So they've made him an offer; they think it's a very good offer, and you might still get a situation as you did with Tahith Chong, where it looked like he was departing only for him to actually commit again to United. So we'll see. Obviously, there was reports of Chelsea. Um, I guess you know gut feeling is that he he, he would probably you know leave um, you know this summer if if, if he 
could go to a club like Chelsea. Um, but it's certainly not. It's not one. I don't. I don't think. I don't, I'm not under the impression that United will go back with a, a further offer. I think it's it's there and it's up to him if he wants to take it or not. Um, Igalo, uh, similar kind of situation. It's up to Shanghai Shenyu whether they um, want to let him continue on at United. United would certainly like to do that. Um, I guess Andy with his interview with Oli. I don't know if that came up in the conversation, but um, equally United aren't. They would love to to have him uh, at the club. You know, I think probably on a permanent basis, but equally only if it's right and only if it doesn't um, stop the development of, say, Mason Greenwood. And obviously with Marcus Rashford being back fit now as well, that was something that, that somebody said to me, don't forget, that's that's partly why we, we had to go on, on deadline day because Rashford was injured at the time and, and now he's back. So, you know, you, you've got to balance it up and, and whether he's going to get the opportunities, Igalo, I mean, to, to play again. But um, yeah, I don't know if did either of those come up with you, Andy, when you spoke to Oli? I'm told Rashford's two weeks off being back, so he's nearly there. Um, yeah. And then what you're saying about um, Igolo, yeah, you're right there. I suspect he wants to stay, and I think his club in China want him back. So uh, I don't know what the solution is going to be. It made a great impression because I remember when he signed, and the reaction was very underwhelming from a lot of Manchester United fans. Hmm. So yeah. he, he was definitely proving people wrong. Carl, why were you playing at Carrington against James Wilson? Did you used to play? I've got to ask you this. You can't just throw it in there. I was never that good. Uh, this was when uh, Manchester United changed from uh, the, the swoosh to the stripes. Uh, and during a promotional event, I was invited to Carrington. And uh, James Wilson pops up. Uh, I was made to the man mark him. And he absolutely ruined me. Oh. So you were, defen- <laughs> you were in defence, were you, Carl? I was a defensive midfielder in my footballing time. Uh, and I thought, yeah, I can, I can man mark James Wilson on a little... <laughs> On a little set piece, I went. He's there. He's there. He's there. I looked for the ball to come in. I turned around, and he was absolutely gone. Put the so ball who, back on that. Who else was Who else was playing for United then? Was it Was it their kids again? Or, or how? What were the ages at this point? It was a collection of uh, United kids, some influencers, and a couple of football journalists, and myself. Uh, and James Olsen was the sort of the, the crown jewel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and he <laughs> absolutely absolutely ruined me every time. I thought I knew where he was. I turn around for a split second and he's gone <laughs> I don't think people realise how good professional footballers are and when yeah. I hear people saying he's rubbish he's absolutely crap they haven't got a clue of how good you've got to be to, to be a semi-professional footballer is difficult yeah. to be a professional one's really difficult to be at Manchester United you've got to be like one of the best 750 players in the world and uh, I'd love the idea of like some fan who's absolutely hammering a player just to let him <laughs> actually play against that player. I think it'd be brilliant. Or the other idea I like is when fans are analysing a manager's tactics, which is fine and which is what every fan does and everyone's got their own opinions and that's what makes football. Just put him in charge of a team for a day. Right, there you are. Yeah. You are now Manchester United's manager for a day. You've got 25 different personalities in this room. You all speak different languages. Go for it. Work your magic. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think it'd be brilliant. I've got one final question. From our mailbag, it's from Rohan or at MUFC Olegs on Twitter. Thank you very much for for contributing to the conversation. This one is direct to you, Andy. Which is basically, is there any game you've missed in the last couple of years? He's very interested in this one because apparently you've watched every single game, and he's put a cry face emoji because he's so impressed by your uh, oracle like ability to be everywhere and everywhere. No, I've missed loads of matches. I, I, I probably go to eighty five, ninety games a season, but. 
they're not all Manchester United games by any stretch. I mean, I'm dividing my time between Barcelona, where my family are, and Manchester, where I'm, I'm from. But I'd say from about 92 to 98, I was going every single Manchester United game. Probably only missed two or three in, in all of that time. And I'm very lucky now because it is also my job to, to go to lots of games. I love going to football matches and... That's why I'm quite uneasy about watching the German football on TV. I like being there. That's how the type of writing what I do is is me being there. And uh, no, I'm, I've missed I've missed lots of Manchester United games, but I, I try to do you know all of the pre seasons, all the European away games. But I'm not at every every single game. It would be impossible to do it because I work for different people and they demand that I go to other matches, um, sometimes against my will, but normally I get my way. Normally I'm at the Man United games that I want to be at and that's how I want it. That's how I've chosen to do the job that, that, that I do. But yeah, I've been to, I think I've seen United in 45 countries and I love travel. I love meeting people and you, it's amazing that you go to somewhere like Hong Kong or Malaysia or the United States and one of the best chats I've had over the last few years with these two lads from Los Angeles and they were so proud to be from LA, which not a lot of people are from there. And they told me about the history of their city. And they were massive Man United fans. And I just thought, this is amazing. Because if I'd grown up in Scunthorpe, supporting Scunthorpe United, you'd never get those those chances to meet people around the world. And yeah, it's 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 the, the whole Manchester United diaspora is absolutely fascinating. And that brings us right back to the start of the podcast where... That's the one thing the Glazers wanted to tap into, this massive uh, global support. But it's so much more than the 90 minutes on the pitch. It really is. And listeners, if you're wondering where this Ole Gunnar Solskjaer interview we keep bringing up during our mailbag is from, Andy, let the people know. Oh, well, we did Solskjaer for United We Stand fanzine and he was great with me and appreciated him giving us the time. I've been on his case all season to give us an interview and... He gave us time which we wouldn't have got during the season. And uh, I saw that the, the, the quote about the hole in the arsehole, it went everywhere. But it's difficult for the fans in at the moment because we've got no games to sell at. So we need people to order it. And people have been doing. We've got record subscription levels. But our circulation is still well down on what we'd normally be selling because most of the copies are sold at, at matches. But yeah, people have been ordering it. It's dead easy. PayPal. It's on my Twitter. Just PayPal the money to uwsmag at yahoo.co.uk with your name and address. Some people have been sending the money in and not sending the name and address. I mean, I can guess people's name and addresses, but there are quite <laughs> a few in the world. Might <laughs> not, not go anywhere. But my overriding thought was, uh, and the feedback to it was that uh, people liked the way Ollie came across. I don't know whether you read it, Laurie. And you might yeah, think I did. it's the worst interview ever, but you know, he, no. I think United fans have enjoyed it. I read it and, and I thought it was great. You know, good, frank, honest interview. Um, and obviously, with the next um, section coming out next week, or so next next edition, um, I'm sure there's more in it as well. I, I think you got under the skin of him, and I think it's good that he's turned to, you know, to you, you know, in, the, in this time, given you know, United we stand obviously haven't got the opportunity to sell um, outside of of, of grand. It's re- it is really easy. Andy says I've got it on my phone actually on, on an app. And it's just, you know, a thumbprint to, to actually subscribe for the year. So, dead easy. Yeah, the second part, I mean, that might not be welcomed so enthusiastically because that's where he talks about playing De Gea up front from next season and then he's been <laughs> offered the Barcelona job. So, Oli's going to actually change jobs in a, in a few months and he's going to go to Barcelona. So, no, nah, I'm, I'm, obviously I'm joking, <laughs> but he was, 
he was good with us and, and we appreciate that. And I've known him for a long time and I helped him set up his website in 2000 and he bought our fanzine t-shirts in 1999. I love the fact that there's a manager there who understands fan culture because fans are what make football as well as good players. And he's got to go out and buy a couple more, which he wants to do. Thank you very much, listener, for joining us for an episode of Talk of the Devils. Thank you so much, Laurie, for working on this great Glazer piece that everyone can enjoy now on the website. Cheers, Carl. I'm gonna I'm gonna post it on Twitter and then and, and, and maybe dip into the mentions, but maybe also switch them off because it is such a controversial <laughs> topic. I'm sure I'll get pelters from one side or another. And thank you, Andy, for basically getting uh, Ollie to use the word asshole. Cheers. Nice to speak to you both. Uh, and thank you, listener, for joining us. Remember, next week we are doing our conclusion of the rebooting series. So hit us up with all of your memories of the treble victory. So hit us up on social media, get in with your reader comments, and we will read them out on the show. Other than that, thanks for joining us. It's been another episode of Talk of the Devils podcast, a Manchester United podcast brought to you by The Athletic. We will see you next week. <laughs>